following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Episode 791. As I look at my notes, I am your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today by the lovely, the talented, and the scholarly, Brittany Page, everyone. Also, the chronically sleep-deprived, but I think I'm getting to a point where I... Your body's just giving up. Yeah, I'm starting to adjust (laughs) to it. I think I'm thriving. I think this is maybe the way that my body always wanted sleep to be. This is this is what my body wanted. I think you're so sleep defra- deprived <laughs> that you're making excuse like your brain is just fried mm. and not working. It's like maybe this is the way it was always <laughs> meant to be. Ooh. Yeah, no, I'm trying to convince myself so that I can uh, maintain my sanity. It'll be over soon. She's she's sweepy. We're talking about our new bulldog puppy. Yeah. Um she she's sleeping longer. She's going longer in between poop and pee sessions in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, during the day is a bit more of a challenge, but she currently is not sleeping on us while we're doing the show, which is also an improvement. The last several times we've done the show... Cradled in the arms. She has not wanted to be put down, and sometimes we can have her fall asleep in our arms and then move her to another location. Sometimes, though, she wakes up and discovers that we have moved her and crawls back into our arms not the case today she's actually opened her eyes and looked straight at me like you fucking traitor a couple times already <laughs> oh okay good <laughs> it is interesting though the the difference between the sleeping potty training situation and the awake because i feel like i'm on like a guard tower in a prison yeah having to keep eyes on her constantly yeah for fear that she's gonna squat mm-hmm. and do some biz Yeah, well, and that's what we were talking last time about our routine being upended. And we're still in this period of trying to adjust to it because she chews on everything in sight. Expected. You have to watch her 24-7. Otherwise, she's going to chew on something, piss on something, shit on something. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Just... Be a terror, which is very fun. It's it's fun at times, but it it is quite draining to have to be guarding something. Yeah, in the moment when tragedy has happened, <laughs> it, it is hard to. Well, let me let me reverse. Let me put it the other way. When she's being the sweetest of the sweet, which is like. 89, 90, 92% of the time. I'm getting specific with my percentages. Yeah. It's the vast majority of the time. Mm-hmm. Those times, it's easy to forgive the terrorism. Yes. Yes. The, the other thing, if I may, Brittany Page, this is, after all, your show. Our uh, show. Your show as well. Is I've, I think I've uh, learned something about human nature. Mm-hmm. Through having Sweepy. Okay. And that is, it is a universal mm-hmm. fact. Yeah. All people love puppies. <laughs> Tough guys who are grouse-faced, angry-looking. Uh-huh. Um, 
people who are intent on doing their work, whether it be a FedEx driver who's like, I don't have time to fucking be distracted and look, I'm <laughs> I'm on a schedule here. Yeah. I mean, obviously, little kids. Uh huh. Everyone kids. loves puppies. Yes. Well, everyone wants to stop. What? Except for a few people. There have been a few people that have looked her right in her face and been completely unimpressed. But that is very few and far between. Yeah, those are people who are just deeply unhappy with their lives, I think. <laughs> she, she really is a, a, a beacon. Yeah. A lighthouse flooding the world with joy and revel- revelatory emotion. Now, I will say that that has been my favorite part of having Sweet Pea is the joy that she brings to other people. And, I mean, people will squeal walking by yes. when they people see her. People you don't expect is what I'm talking about. Yeah, they will squeal. They will run over and, you know, say, can I pet your dog? Can I take a picture of your dog? And it, it's nice. We're getting to know the neighborhood quite well. Oh, like we never have before. Yeah. In fact, I wish that I could walk around and have people just be excited to see me and smile at me. <laughs> they don't give a single fuck about you, Brittany They Page. don't at all. At all. At all. Unless I have that dog. <laughs> going out in public alone yeah. versus going out in public with Sweepy, completely different situation. It has also absolutely shown to me the politeness of this city. Mm. I mean, not like anybody would just run up and pet her, but everyone has been... May I pet your dog? Can I yeah. pet your dog? Not yeah. just rolling up like on a pregnant lady and just touching their belly without asking. Right. Well, I will say... We, Which is a fucking thing that happens. So before we had Sweepy, we were taking walks regularly, trying to get our 10,000 steps like nerds. And it was really... It was good for us. Good for our mental health. Good for us to be getting out of the house, exploring the neighborhood after H- a big move. Helping me continue to lose weight since I'm down plus 20 pounds now. Yeah. Congratulations. Good work. And toot, toot. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Okay. And one thing is that we have been taking Sweepy out in her stroller, which used yes. to be Popeye's stroller, but now it is Sweepy's stroller. And we feel like douches every time we go out with well, Sweepy in the stroller because it's, it's a dog in a stroller. If it's it looks necessary. Stupid. She's well, not fully vaccinated. She doesn't even know what a leash is yet, like I said last time. Yeah. So that's the thing is Popeye needed the stroller because. He didn't like to go anywhere. He didn't like to do anything. He was also old and arthritic, and yeah, walking long distances was bad for him. He couldn't go very far because of his limitations, but also he never wanted to. Right. The mailbox was too far for Popeye. Yes. And so for Sweepy, we were out in the stroller with her, and someone stopped and said, oh, is she not allowed on the ground? Yeah. I think, I think that woman felt like a dumb fuck as soon as the words left her mouth. Well, it's obviously not that she's not allowed on the ground, but there's too many variables right now, including the fact that she will have energy for maybe a sustained period of 30 minutes and then immediately crash out for an hour. Yeah, she's like a cheetah. She runs at like 80 miles an hour for like 10 seconds and then she's got to... She's got to recoup. So it's just the easiest thing to put her in a stroller, take her with us so we can do what we need to do. But I feel like the question she asked was motivated out of judgment that people have when they see dogs in strollers and what kind of person is putting a dog in a stroller. Yeah, I I think that might be your insecurity sneaking in. It could be. And, it could be. And coloring what her motivation was. That, I just think it was a dumb question. Yeah. By well. a dumb person. <laughs> I mean, I think it's very likely 
that moments after she stopped petting Sweepy, which was, by the way, a prolonged and aggressive period of time, it's very likely she stepped into the street and got hit by a bus. That's, <laughs> she's that stupid. Okay, so... And the lady, if you're a listener... Uh, you know. No, this is one of my favorite things about us in our interactions <laughs> is I am more prone to ascribing nefarious intent. Yes, you are. And you counter that with... <laughs> it's no big deal. Everyone's fine. Everyone has good intentions. Everything's great. Well, no, I don't think everyone has good intentions. I just don't think everyone has nefarious intent behind their questions. I don't think everyone questions. has. No, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Oh. Most people... I'm going to fucking tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> most, people, most people aren't aggressive enough to... To be that open and upfront about their aggress- aggression. Yeah. They're not going to be that lame, that, you know what I mean? Right to our face. Well, no, I think some people will. But also I think that, that it can be passive. That, that I don't think that statement, if there was shitty intent behind it, is a direct statement. I think it's Yeah, well, passive. I mean, let, let's, let's, let's back down with it then. So if... If indeed she... Get on the ground with it. Let's get on the ground with will it. Will it scale? Get on the ground is... It's my thing. That's not a... That's Anytime not a, I can work in will it a, scale, I'm going to do it. That's not a typical business talk. That's something I say. <laughs> I'm the genius who invented that particular thing. I'm sure saying. you are, Fringe. Go ahead. Fringe. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is let's, let's rework the idea then. So if indeed she meant it the way you think or you initially thought she meant it... Mm-hmm. So it would have been the same as her saying, what are you people, a couple of dumb fucks and won't let your dog on the ground? Is that what you think she meant? it's not at all like that. No, I think it's motivated by an implicit judgment of people who put their pets in strollers, think their pets are delicate and they need to be treated differently. and, And so, oh, is she not allowed to be on the ground? And... You know, asking the question as though, yeah. See, I, I don't, dis- I, I don't attach to it nefarious intent. I attach to it dumbassery. She's yeah. just a dumb fuck. Yeah. Well, I, I really, I think that's where it squares with. The, I mean, that's that's where we split. You think most people are evil geniuses, <laughs> and I think most people are dumb fucks. That's right. Okay. <laughs> um, no. So I. This is just a. A the more you know moment for people to understand that if you see someone with a dog in a stroller, that maybe they have other things going on. Maybe they have a good reason for doing so, and they are not, in fact, a douche. The more you know. I was looking for it. I was looking for it as soon as you said it. As right. soon as you ended it, just like that. Put a little bow on it. So, um... Anyway, thank you guys for joining us. Episode 791. I think leading to episode 800, I'm going to be just like, holy shit, we're at episode 800, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. So great. Yeah. Um, we're going to start with a voicemail that we have, and then we're going to move on to some follow-up, and then, of course, Dollamocracy, followed by Taking Care of Biz, and then we'll end the show. You don't normally mo- do this. It's a joke. I <laughs> caught myself doing it, and I was like, well, I might as well just fucking outline the goddamn <laughs> All thing. Right. All right. Uh, China. Hey there, Jesse and Brittany. So I am sending this voice memo to give an update on the situation in China with regards to COVID, specifically to bring some perspective to the right wing fucking nut jobs who think that the federal and state response in the United States is some sort of totalitarian takeover. 
long story short, is not taken from somebody that's living in an actual authoritarian country at this point. So just up front, the past two years, I have known a shit ton of people who've had COVID and a few that have died. Not a single one of them are here in China. Every single one of them is in the United States or Europe. Um, that being said, the recent responses to the Omicron uh, wave are absurd here, and they're based very much on saving face and not on science, which is a hallmark hallmark of our authoritarian regimes. Now, I live in the city of Kunshan, which is due west of Shanghai and due east of a city called Suzhou. So, Shanghai, Su Shanghai, Kunshan, Suzhou, uh, moving in from the east coast. In the past few weeks, 21 asymptomatic cases have been detected in Kunshan, and everything has shut the fuck down. There are hard borders between Shanghai, Kunshan, and Suzhou. I mean hard borders. Nobody can move. And then hard borders within the cities as well, between different districts. On top of that, um, we have to test do NAT tests every day. So in my city of Kunshan, 1.6 million people, they managed to test everybody every day for the past four days now. On top of that, food supplies are running short. Shelves are bare. Uh, we have enough food stocked up in our apartments, um, but it's not a very pleasant situation to say the least. On top of that, we have not been able to get my wife's prescriptions for several weeks, uh, which will be running out soon, and we are currently rationing. And then if you are detected to have COVID or if you have been in contact with people who have been in areas where there has been an outbreak, and again, an outbreak might mean one or two people, then you go into a gulag-like quarantine where essentially you are imprisoned for two weeks on end. So, yeah, to all those right-wing maggot nuts out there that think that they are actually uh, experiencing a totalitarian takeover, they should come over and spend, and spend a week here and see what it's actually like. Because those fuckers have no goddamn idea. They are pulling this out of their ass, and honestly... Fuck them all. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. All right. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. Love the show. Brittany's the best part. Bye. So I, I did say this caller's name at the beginning, but I don't remember him saying his name. So it's very likely that I am going to bleep it in post. Mm. Because, well, one, he is outlining the fact that he lives in an authoritarian country of China, and I don't want them to be able to, you know, whatever, piece it back and... You know, anyway. Yeah. So um, I, I'm on board, and I hope that you and your wife are safe, uh, especially related to the inability to, to get prescriptions. So oh, absolutely. I, I, it's actually one of the things I've seen multiple times on social media and on YouTube uh, in news, news reports, news packages of um, like – this little old Chinese lady screaming and wailing outside of a pharmacy, just please, I need my husband's medicine mm. and unable to get it. Yeah. Um, back to the, the right wing fucking nut job thing. It is, it really shines a light on the selfishness of what we've experienced over the more than two years now of 
of thinking that a mask mm-hmm. is oppression. <laughs> that a surgical mask, which people in hospital settings wear even pre-COVID, mm-hmm. like surgeons who do like eight-hour surgeries, got a mask on. Yeah. One, because it works. Two, because it protects the patient. I mean, it just... And to act like that's some kind of tyranny, run amok government, they just... And they want to control us. Mm-hmm. Like what What control? What, what, what when for the government is there that everybody wears a mask and that the economy gets slowed to whatever degree what what benefit what's what's the and they never can answer oh it's just it's all about control Mm -hmm. and this is listen I, i grew up much like this with these types of conspiracy theories about the government the big bad government that wants to put an rfid I mean, there were people. There were people in my 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 parents' friend circle that believed a social security number was the mark of the beast and a tracking device that you should not get. Uh, Insanity, Mm -hmm. and this is just degrees of insanity less than that. Yeah. When we're looking across the globe, and there are countries that are going a little bit overboard relative to the restriction of people's liberties, because no one. Even when there were like the the lockdowns where hey kind of stay in your house, there was no like police force enforcing it. You weren't like, where are you going? Why are you out? Right. That never happened. Mm-hmm. It's it's all been about protecting your neighbor. Yeah. Even getting the vaccine, which some of these fucking dum dums won't do. And many people have failed that test spectacularly. Yeah. I shared a tweet from Trevor J. Adams on the Facebook page yesterday, and they wrote, why do we call them restrictions anyway? Do you look at a life jacket and think, there's my drowning restriction? And yeah. I think that that, <laughs> that sums up the mask thing very well, because right now in, in D.C., the COVID numbers are rising again. Right. Just weeks after they lifted the mask mandate. Yeah, and we... Never stopped wearing our masks in grocery stores. In fact, in D.C., thank God we don't live in Orange County anymore. Most people continued to wear their masks in restaurants, in the grocery store. It's very common, even though the mandate got lifted, to see most people wearing masks. And what I notice, and this might be just me fucking hating on people, but it's white dudes. Mm -hmm. It is almost... Almost every single time you see someone without a mask on in a grocery store is some fucking white guy mm-hmm. strutting his stuff like he's impervious or or special or ugh, just. And, and I'm also over. I'm over it. Correcting people mm-hmm. saying something like, hey, fuck what the fuck, dude. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. So, yeah. Well, did you hear about the uh, dinner where a bunch of people in Washington got uh, covid? No. Two cabinet members, two members of Congress, top aide to Vice President Kamala Harris. Mm. And they had to show a proof of vaccination. And then they went into a dinner and didn't have masks, didn't have to show a negative test. And Adam Schiff tested positive. Merrick Garland has tested positive. Oh, was he at that dinner? Yes. Oh, I did see that all those people tested positive. Is that where Nancy Pelosi got it too? I am not sure about Nancy Pelosi. But there are there is a ton of people that got it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'd love to know 
what you think. If you're outside of the country, we'd love to know what your experiences have been and where we are right now relative to the continued mitigation efforts. Uh, you know, cases are rising now in D.C. and New York. And uh, we'll see. Maybe it's just a, a, a blip on the radar. But, uh, you know, my if there's any takeaway for me on how we've handled this over the course of the last two years, and it's been the, the, the criticism that it's reactive. Well, I think this outbreak with the Washington officials shows that, is that we have the new variant, cases are rising, and yet they're all going to a dinner party mingling and acting like everything's normal. Like, you guys are supposed to be leading the way, right? Yeah. And yet you are retreating and giving up because it's too hard to combat the right-wing goofballs who are out here talking about masks being oppressive. I mean, yeah. to bring it full circle. It's really disappointing to see people in in positions of power unable to continue to emphasize that these measures are important to keep in place until we're through this. Especially when these these people who are in power are all in the the risk category. Yeah. They're fucking old. Absolutely. They're, they're more frail. Their 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 immune system isn't as robust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just dumb. Yeah. Anyway, we'd love to know what you think and what your experience has been. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to I doubt it at dollamore.com. A little bit of follow-up. Uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed by the United States Senate, a vote of 53 to 46. Three Three Republicans. Republicans, Yes. Can you name them? Romney. Mitt Romney from Utah. Collins. Susan Collins from Maine. Murkowski. Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. Only three. Shameful. Fucking shameful. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is by far... By every metric, objectively, the most qualified who now will be seated on the Supreme Court of this, these United States. The most, the most experienced, the most qualified. And it was a almost down the line partisan vote. Crazy. To be sure, I have worked hard to get to this point in my career, and I have now achieved something far beyond anything my grandparents could have possibly ever imagined. But no one does this on their own. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave. I, I am the dream and the hope of a slave. So I thought this was a a powerful speech that she gave and a moving moment. I think if you are someone who exists online and saw the responses to this day when the confirmation was confirmed, if you saw the footage of her standing with Joe Biden as she saw the confirmation mm-hmm. uh, go through, then there is no way to deny that this is such an important moment and a moving moment for many people who now see themselves reflected in her 
rising to this yeah. level of, of power in our society. Also, pretty disgraceful that the Republican Party walked out en masse while the Senate chamber applauded, mm-hmm. celebrating and recognizing this moment in American history. 233 years. And we finally have a black woman on the Supreme Court. Right. Who brings with her, look, it's not just about her skin color. It's about what she brings with her to the bench. It's her life experiences. Her unique lived experience will be an asset to the United States Supreme Court and, by extension, the country. Yeah. Because a white dude only has a a limited experience in this world. He doesn't experience the world the way others do, and uh, it's it's um, definitely a benefit. One Republican stayed to clap. Mitt Romney. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, you don't get any kudos for it. We'll yeah. just We'll make sure that that is a fact on the record for you, guy, but... <laughs> Do you hear that, Mitt Romney? <laughs> does it actually matter in the scheme of things? I yeah. don't think so. So, keeping with the theme of the Supreme Court, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was interviewed, and... In, in this interview, she was asked under the backdrop of Clarence Thomas, Jenny Thomas, which again, where did that story go? <laughs> right. I haven't seen anything. I mean, we talked about it on the last show about it disappearing. It really disappeared. By now, no one is talking about it. Not only that, we'll get let's get to this Amy Coney Barrett thing, but th- there was a story that hit and then went away about a, an expert in cults saying that Clarence Thomas and Jenny Thomas are actually in a Trump cult. And I didn't know this, but Jenny Thomas actually escaped a cult in the 80s. Oh, really? Like an actual cult where she had to be deprogrammed. Wow. And there's footage. I, I, I did a YouTube video about it. There's footage of her at a gathering of former members of this cult talking about their experience and what it is that the strongest points that actually helped them get away. And it was mm. family for her. But she talked for like three minutes in this clip in the 80s. Wow. And then... It really is kind of a, you know, people who are always searching, they move from one weird movement to the next kind of a thing. I think Mm -hmm. she may be one of those types. Well, it seems like if you have uh, fallen victim to a cult in the past, it makes you more vulnerable to have that happen again, even if you've gone through a process of being, what's the word you use, deprogrammed? Yeah, well, that's the word she used. She goes, I I was what I think of as programmed, Mm. she said. Those are her words. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, so uh, during this discussion... Another with, cult member, Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, during <laughs> during this discussion, Amy Coney Barrett was asked what her position would be on there being some sort of guidelines for spouses of Supreme Court justices. Uh, although it was not the case uh, for much of the course long history, today many of the justices have working spouses. You, um, Your husband, Jesse, remains a practicing lawyer. What do you see as some of the challenges of balancing two careers when one is in service to the Supreme Court? I think that for us, um, the challenges that we face are those that, you know, couples who are both working and have children at home always face. I mean, we balance now in the same way that we've balanced for our whole marriage, 
you know, who's going to do what for childcare and, and spreading um, ourselves thin. And, and Jesse is very generous in picking up a lot of the slack. He is working largely out of a home office right now, and so that gives him a little bit of flexibility, which is much appreciated by me. Um, you know, Jesse is a lawyer, and so we are very careful to avoid conflicts. Um, not all justices who have working spouses have spouses who are lawyers. Um, the chief does, although his wife is no longer actually practicing law. Um, so it is it's something that we're very conscious of and very careful about, but you know, I think we're living in a time when we have a lot of uh, couples where both are working, and so I think that the court and you know, society has to adjust to expect that. Do you, do you think there should be court guidelines on what working spouses should and should not do? I don't think most of the spouses would be very happy about those guidelines. <laughs> Certainly when I try to give my husband guidelines about what to do and not to do in the house, even that doesn't go over very well. Um, no, I mean, the court is, is very, like I said, everybody's very attentive to those kinds of things. So why, why is there not a, why do they not follow up? Why do they not press the issue? She didn't answer the question. What do you think? What do you think? Well, I don't think the spouses would be blah, 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 blah. Wasn't a fucking question, lady. What do you think? Well, she said it at the end there where she said that she thinks that everyone maintains awareness of those issues or whatever she said. So it's not a big deal. Except for the fact that Jenny Thomas was was uh, explicitly trying to to interfere in the election and have the White House chief of staff take her counsel to overthrow the United States government by overturning a free and fair election. Now, that would have been the follow up. Not, hey, what do you actually think? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Why can't they just do their fucking jobs? Well, because they are political appointees and the court is a partisan entity, even though they all want to pretend that it's not. Yeah. It is. Fucking fantasy land. And it's only getting worse. And this is what we have, is Amy Coney Barrett being able to laugh off questions. Legitimate. Yeah. Questions. I mean, while the fate of our democracy hangs in the balance, while there is a, 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 a group of Americans out there working in tandem with one another in a concerted effort to overturn a free and fair election up to and including, I mean, obviously Donald Trump, but even his dopey kids, Donald Trump Jr. now, text messages are being revealed that he had a hand early on, much earlier than we knew previously, of what the strategy going forward was going to be in, a, in an effort to, to reverse the free and fair results of the election. Now we want to get to this breaking news, a CNN exclusive, two days after the 2020 presidential election, as votes were still being tallied. CNN is learning that Donald Trump's oldest son texted then-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows some ideas for overturning the election. This is before the election was called. He wrote, quote, we have operational control to ensure his father would get a second term. CNN's Ryan Nobles is one of the reporters breaking this story. Ryan, uh, what exactly do these texts tell us? 
Well, uh, Victor and Allison, this is a lengthy text that Donald Trump Jr. sent to Mark Meadows on November 5th. And as you rightly point out, it was two days after the election. It was while votes were still being counted. And it was before any of the major television networks had declared Joe Biden the winner. And in this lengthy text, uh, Donald Trump Jr. lays out a number of operational legal strategies that the Trump campaign and Republican operatives across the country would then go on to employ. A lot of these legal theories would not come out until weeks, sometimes months later. But what this text tells us is that there were already discussions at the highest level of the Trump family within the Trump orbit about some of these legal strategies that uh, were mainly rejected across the country by a a variety of judges. And and within this text, uh, Donald Trump Jr. uh, suggests that it is the Republicans that have the control, that they would be able to use these questionable legal theories in order to keep Donald Trump in office for a second term. I'll just give you an example of some of the things that Donald Trump Jr. suggested uh, that they should pursue, creating an alternate slate of fake electors. That was one of his suggestions in this text message. This is something that we know that Rudy Giuliani and those close to the Trump administration attempted to employ. There were a number uh, of individuals within the Republican Party that actually gathered together and submitted a false set of electors to Vice President Pence and the United States Congress. This is something Donald Trump Jr talking to Mark Meadows via text about on November 5th. He also talked about pushing the vote back to the state legislatures. We also know this was a legal theory uh, that uh, Trump and his allies were attempting pursue, to pursue. And he also talked about forcing a scenario where neither candidate had enough electoral votes to win, leaving it to the House to vote by state delegation to elect the president. Again, another legal theory floated by the Trump campaign. Now, it's important to point out uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s lawyer has told that he believes that this was just an idea that Donald Trump Jr. was passing along to Mark Meadows, that he isn't actually the original author of this text, but is still significant, Victor and Allison, given everything we know about the Trump campaign, that he was passing this information along to the White House chief of staff just two days after the election and before all the votes were tallied. Victor and Allison. So I think that's the key that the people we wish would care will not care about is that this was all orchestrated before the votes were even counted. So the, the allegations of fraud, the allegations of all of the votes not being counted, everything that they say, it doesn't matter because they were already trying to figure out how to stay in power before the votes were even counted. Well, that was the narrative before a winner was declared. Before a winner was declared, that was the narrative that they were going to go with. Also, uh, shockingly enough, this is a statement from a lawyer that maybe for the first time ever that I can believe, which is that these weren't original ideas from fucking dumb, dumb Donald Trump Jr. Mm -hmm. These were passed along. He doesn't understand the delegate system well enough to know that, oh, we're going to send a a slate of fake electors. and He doesn't know all this. Mm -hmm. There were people in position... So now we're learning, I mean, if I'm right about this, probably weeks or months prior to the election who were coming up with these strategies to try to overturn the election because they knew, they knew it wasn't good for Donald Trump and it was very likely he was going to lose. Yeah. It's it's scary to think about all of this happening and how many people in this country don't care yeah. How easily they have been manipulated. Well, it's also scary to think, what if Mike Pence had done what they wanted him to do? Yeah. 
it may have gone to the Supreme. I mean, who fucking knows? Yeah. Who knows? It's easy to say, knowing what we know, witnessing what we witnessed, that, oh, everything would have worked out. We have a strong democracy. No, the fuck we don't. Mm-hmm. It is we. It is ready to collapse at any moment. It is way more frail than we ever believed. And it's because of people, shameless charlatans like Mitch McConnell, who talked to Jonathan Swan this last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. I Doubt It is a listener-supported podcast. Support comes from our most loyal, engaged, intelligent, and good-looking listeners just like you via Patreon. Your support on Patreon for as little as $2 a month would help keep the conversation moving forward one podcast at a time. If you have a few dollars to spare each month, we invite you to help produce the show by joining the Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash podcast. We would like to thank our new Patreon supporter, Tammy P. Tammy P. Thank you very much, Tammy P. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter, you can go check out the website, patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. There are different tiers with different rewards. We are still mailing out the magnets. Yes, we are still mailing out the magnets. <laughs> we, we, we we got more than we thought. We did. <laughs> But we are already brainstorming what our end of the year Patreon gift is going to be. And we actually should add that as a reward in the tiers. I don't know if we have that, that we do a, no, a yearly we don't. Patreon gift. No, we don't. That's not in the tiers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we, we recently released an interview with Rory O'Connor, who is an international expert on suicide. We received a lot of positive feedback on that. We're happy that you guys are enjoying these interviews that we're doing and that we're putting out. We invite you to send us feedback on them so that we can tweak anything that we're doing or improve what we're doing. We always appreciate feedback as long as it is helpful and not trollish or death threaty. Well, also, I would love if there's people who would they'd love to have on the show would oh, be yeah. another thing is, is audience participation in suggestions for for guests. Yes. Again, 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. So speaking of a couple of different things, speaking of Mitch McConnell, I, I, I teased it before the Patreon break, and speaking of journalists who actually ask follow-ups that are good, who ask follow-ups that make the avoider of the question uncomfortable, We're going to play this clip where Mitch McConnell sat down on a stage with an audience with uh, Jonathan Swan of Axios, who, for my money, is top tier, top notch, solid. When I mean, he's the guy that when when it was asking Donald Trump questions about COVID and Donald Trump's giving him a map or a graph and and he's got his face just like, what the fuck is this? I have no. Yeah, he he doesn't pull any punches. Mm hmm. And I want you to listen to this clip of Mitch McConnell because he's asking him about when Mitch McConnell said Donald Trump was morally responsible for the insurrection, but also that if Donald Trump gets the nomination, he's going to vote for him. It's it's akin to Bill Barr saying that he believes Donald Trump is a danger and all of these things, but also I'll vote for him if he gets the nomination. Mm-hmm. He's detached from reality is what he said, that, but he'll also vote for him. And so... Jonathan Zwan presses him on that and forces the issue and re-asks the question. 
and I want you to listen for, because you're not watching it, Mitch McConnell visibly irritated, doesn't yeah. want to answer the question, doesn't like that it's being reframed and put to him again, and he's doing his best to not answer it. It's a pretty wild moment and uh, strong, strong performance by Jonathan Swalt. You are known for playing a ruthless style of politics. Where do you draw your moral red lines? <laughs> I didn't realize I was known for playing a ruthless style. I thought my, my wife thinks I'm a really nice guy. <laughs> my kids like me. Um, I got so a lot of friends. four so far, okay. Uh, I'm shocked to hear such a comment. Let's just take as a premise, and I think the audience might agree with me, that there are some people, maybe some substantial people in this country, who, who, who might agree with that assertion. I'm sure you can find so moral, some So moral red lines, where do you draw them? Um, I'm perfectly comfortable with the way I have conducted my political career, and... Uh, I'd be happy to respond to any specificity you want to apply to the term, what was it? Moral red lines. Moral red line. Yeah. Well, let me give I'm you, very comfortable with my moral red line. Let me give you one specific. Help me understand this. I watched your speech last year in February on the Senate floor after the second impeachment vote for Donald Trump. And it was an extraordinary speech. You spoke very powerfully against the most powerful figure in your party, the, the president. Um, and you said Donald Trump's actions preceding the January 6th insurrection were a, quote, disgraceful dereliction of duty, and that he was practically and morally responsible, morally responsible, your words, for provoking the events of that day. How do you go from saying that to two weeks later saying you'd absolutely support Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee in 2024? Well, as a Republican leader of the Senate, it should not be a front-page headline that I will re support the Republican nominee for president. After you've said that about him, I think it's astonishing. I, I think I have an obligation to support the, the nominee of my, of my party. And... Um, is there anything I, they could do? I will. That will mean that whoever the nominee is has gone out and earned the nomination. Okay, but Donald Trump earned it last time. And I'm just trying to understand, you know, what you say matters. You're, you're a very important voice in this country. You're the leader of your party. And you seem to hold two concurrent, conflicted no, positions. No, not at all inconsistent. I, not at all inconsistent. I stand by everything I said I, on I understand, but January 6th and everything I said on February the 13th. I understand that, but, but what I want to understand, which I haven't heard you address, is... Because I don't get to pick the Republican nominee for president. They're elected by the Republican voters all over the country. I fully understand that, but take Liz Cheney, for example. You she, want to spend some more time on this as well? I, I actually do, because I, I, I actually... <laughs> no, no, I genuinely want to understand this. I really want to understand how you think about yeah. this, because Liz Cheney, who has the same view of you as of January 6th, mm. she said she doesn't want Donald Trump anywhere near the White House, and she's going to work to not make that happen, because she thinks that there are some things more important than party loyalty. Yeah. Oh, well, you, you, maybe you ought to be talking to Liz Cheney. No, but I'm not trying to... I, I really, it's not a gotcha. I'm just actually trying to understand, like, is there any threshold for you of, of what some well, of the you know, level? I say many things I'm sure people don't understand. I think the therapeutic wonderment could be improved yeah. on Jonathan Swan's part because he does seem to be getting almost riled up. And I think it's giving Mitch McConnell the opportunity to 
further create distance because the interviewer is getting a little riled up rather than taking a step back. And I'm not justifying Mitch McConnell's response here. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for ways that it could be improved upon that it could be improved. And I think that's one way to improve it in simply saying, listen, here's, here's where we're at. You have said these very negative things about Donald Trump. Yet you said that you would support Donald Trump. How do you reconcile these two ideas? He is bad for the country He's a bad person, and yet, if Republicans choose him, what are you supposed to do? That's your position. Yeah, right. Should you be doing more to convince your party of your position on Donald Trump? Being the leader. I mean, effectively, he's the leader of the party. Right. He's the the highest positioned Republican elected in the country. Right. So It also doesn't fly with me that he's saying, well... If the people uh, vote for him, the Republican people, I got to do what they... No, you don't. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. You're Mm -hmm. also a voter, and you can choose who to support and who not to support. Right, and you could be doing more right now to try to convince Republicans not to support him. The other thing is that, well, maybe you should be talking to Liz Cheney. Well, that's you're here. (laughs) You're the majority leader of the United States Senate. Mm Mm-hmm. Liz Cheney's not even in leadership anymore. Mm-hmm. You're here. I'm asking you, Mitch McConnell. Oh, maybe somebody else should be sitting here answering these questions. Yeah, maybe they should. Maybe you should not be in power. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely dangerous. So on the on the topic of journalists who could be doing a better fucking job. And also on the topic of just because you are uh, mildly reasonable when you're at Fox News. By the way, spoiler alert, we're talking about Chris uh, Chris Wallace from Fox News, who's now with CNN. CNN Plus. CNN Plus. He's like Tommy Lahren, who's on Fox Nation, except he's on, is it a subscription thing? I think, yes, you have to pay a separate subscription fee for CNN Plus. To watch Chris Wallace question Nicole Hannah-Jones and do it very poorly. Yeah, so let's kind of, Ugh. let's set this up a little bit because this is going to be, like you said, Chris Wallace and author Nicole Hannah-Jones. 1619 Project. Right, talking about a specific passage that he takes issue with, he being Chris Wallace. So this is the passage. In one of her essays, she writes, quote, Without the idealistic, strenuous, and patriotic efforts of black Americans, our democracy today would most likely look very different. It might not be a democracy at all. We like to call those who lived during World War II the greatest generation, but that allows us to ignore the fact that many of this generation fought for democracy abroad while brutally suppressing democracy for millions of American citizens." Chris Wallace takes issue with this, believing that Nicole Hannah-Jones is overstating her case. I, I, I agree with that. I'm just not sure that I would say that if it weren't for blacks, there wouldn't be a democracy at all. Well, we know how we got democracy. It was through a decades-long black resistance struggle called the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, that is a black rights struggle. So uh, you may not like the framing, um, but what I can tell you is the double V for victory campaign was black people were fighting in an army. They were going overseas. They were dying uh, for uh, to liberate other countries and then coming home and being lynched for wearing their uniform. They were coming home and they could not vote. They were coming home and they could see German prisoners 
prisoners of war going into restaurants and being served where they could not be served. I, I completely is, agree with all but, of that. Right, but you want to treat that as uh, a marginal to the American story. But you can't no, call no, yourself no. the greatest democracy and the greatest democratizing force in the country while violently and brutally suppressing democracy at home. And that's what happened okay, but, for but, millions of but American here's citizens. Where, here's where I take some objection. You're talking about, if you say the country, that we were fighting for democracy overseas and we were not living it, walking the walk, talking the talk at home, I completely agree with you. But you specifically say the greatest generation brutally suppressing, many of this generation brutally suppressing democracy for millions of Americans. To me, and I think Tom Brokaw, when he originally wrote the book, The Greatest Generation, was talking about 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who came out of the farm fields of the Midwest, who came out of ethnic neighborhoods in Brooklyn and South Philly and, and, and stormed the beaches of Normandy and, and you know, fought to defeat the, the, most, the worst regime, I would argue, in, in world history. And to say that they... But they were 20, 30-year-olds. The country was brutally suppressing blacks, but the greatest generation wasn't. Well, they were. <laughs> I no, mean, they weren't. You don't You're telling me that a, far, that a kid uh, coming off a farm in Indiana or a kid who came from Brooklyn is was suppressing so Indiana black had people? the largest population of the Klan in the United States. The Klan was re was I understand, but that wasn't the 20-year-old kid who You don't think 20-year-olds were in the Klan? Listen, Chris Wallace, this is a dumb fuck moment for him, an unbelievable moment for him, because the greatest generation was filled with 20-year-olds who grew up to be 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds who did oppress. It's not a snapshot in their lives that they're always 20. They're always pie-eyed, corn-fed Iowa guys. Strom Thurmond and George Wallace were in this generation. Strom Thurmond served in the Normandy campaign in World War II. George Wallace, famous segregationist, was 23 years old when he joined the army during World War II in 1942. Are, are they, they were wonderful people. They weren't racist then. They weren't on a track to oppress millions of Americans, were they? No, no, they were the greatest generation. It's just, it's stupid. Well, it, it, is pretty remarkable to watch this clip. Mediaite has a like seven minute clip. We only played about two and a half minutes here. And in that clip, Nicole Hannah-Jones goes on, continues this conversation with Chris Wallace. And at the end of the Mediaite clip, Chris Wallace is silent and just says, that was good. Which felt condescending to me. Because, I don't know, is that his inability to hang? Or, I think that is it. And, and if so, then I think that should be acknowledged rather than that was good. Like, are are you changing your mind because right. of this conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you learning something new? What what are you coming away from this conversation? What's your takeaway? I mean, think think about the premise, though, that black soldiers, black Marines who fought in World War II, they come home. And the GI benefits that are afforded white soldiers, like homeownership, like college, are not afforded to them. They did the same thing, made the same sacrifices, fought as gallantly, as brave as white soldiers. In many cases, braver. 
because you know your country hates you and you're still fighting for your country. And then when you come home, there's no housing projects for you like Levittown, New York. In fact, there, there were systematic covenances and homeowner association rules to not sell to blacks. It's just, fuck you, Chris Wallace. Especially at the end when you're like, that was good, rather than, huh, you know what? You made some really good points. I'm going to reflect on this. Let's have you back and have another conversation. Right. And, and I think that would be positive, especially with how Nicole Hannah-Jones is demonized by the right. Right. In such a, an aggressive, hostile, dangerous way. Well, because what did she say that's wrong? Mm-hmm. Because, listen, we talk about where the, where the democracy this, democracy that. Women couldn't vote. Right. Until modern times. Well, that's what was interesting. There is- were fucking cars on the road and women couldn't vote. That's not a democracy when over 50% of the country can't vote. There were several moments where she made points and Chris Wallace said, no, I get that and I agree with that point, but... And, and, and it was... A lesson in how people just cling to their preconceived notions, cling to their beliefs during a discussion in which they are being proven wrong. Being fucking routed intellectually. Anyway, we'd love to know. We would love to know what you think about this. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Will Larkins. Will Larkins. Will Larkins is a 17-year-old student at Winter Park High School in Winter Park, Florida. And Will went viral this week because they made a PowerPoint presentation on the Stonewall riots. Now, of course, this is happening in a state, Florida, where there is a national conversation about the don't say gay legislation that just went through there. And at Will Larkins' school... They had recently been learning about pivotal historical events, according to reporting from the Washington Post uh, that occurred in the late 1960s and early 1970s in America. And Will approached their teacher and said, are we going to learn about Stonewall, Stonewall riots? And in response, the teacher said, what's Stonewall? So Will Larkins went viral this week because of a PowerPoint presentation that they put together on the Stonewall riots. A Winter Park High School student goes viral for his history lesson on the Stonewall riots. This comes at a time when Florida recently passed the so-called Don't Say Gay law. West 2's Luana Munoz sat down with the student, hoping to push Florida toward a different side of history. Um, And this was a regular thing in these police raids. Wearing a red dress and pearls, Will Larkins, a student at Winter Park High School, posted this video to Twitter with the caption, LGBTQ American history is not taught in Florida public schools. So I took it upon myself to explain the events of the Stonewall Uprising. And the video has gone viral, gaining more than 21,000 likes. I've always thought that queer history needs to be taught in schools. I mean, it's such an important and vital part of American history, but because of sort of how things have been. Uh, It's just not taught. There's only three states where it is part of the history curriculum. 
The Stonewall riots were a series of demonstrations by LGBTQ members in response to a police raid at the Stonewall Inn in New York City. That was back in 1969. Fast forward to 2022. Not only is LGBTQ history not taught in Florida, the state recently passed the Parental Rights and Education Law, which bans teachers from any talk or lesson on sexual orientation in grades K through third. So the Florida legislature... Will has fought to undo such laws, like organizing this massive rally at Winter Park High on March 7th. A lot of the discrimination and homophobia that I faced at Winter Park uh, came from, comes from a lack of education. It stems from people not understanding that being gay and being queer is not a choice and that there is a whole community that has existed for Ever. And like it or not, his efforts are making headway, even in his own household. He needs an advocate, and this is what he's doing. He's asking for people not to just, well, put up with the gay movement or whatever movement. It's to really be, you know, uh, 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 proactive in it. For Will, the goal is to turn those who were previously neutral to allies and allies to advocates. <laughs> In Winter Park, Luana Munoz, WESH 2 News. Now, Will says he did not face any backlash from his teachers or fellow classmates on campus. We reached out to Orange County Public Schools to, to get a comment on this story, but we haven't heard back just yet. So, also, kudos to the teacher for permitting yeah. Will to give this lesson because, I mean, it's it's a positive response to what's Stonewall, and then a student says, well, let me let me teach. Let me take over. Let me do a lesson on this. And the teacher's like, you know what? Let's do it. Well, it's also a pivotal moment in civil rights history in the United States. It's not gay history. It's American history. We should right. we should know about the the different liberation movements and and how this country has systematically oppressed myriad groups. Yes. Throughout our history. Now, one interesting thing is during this clip when I was uh, downloading it for the show. The parent that you heard talking there, Will's dad, is Ted Larkins. Former guest on the show. Yes. We were watching the clip on the couch downstairs, mm -hmm. and you were like, what? What the fuck? This, this, is, this is the guy. This is the guy who wrote the book, Get to Be Happy, Stories and Secrets to Loving the Shit Out of Life. Yeah, we had Ted on the show back in August of 2018. Yeah, so he moved from Orange County, California to Orange County, Florida. He just loves Orange County. I guess. <laughs> I guess. So well, good for his kid. Yeah, absolutely. Kudos to Will Larkins for the advocacy. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to know what you think about this. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Listen, if you've been on the fence, you've been thinking about supporting the show, and you're you're now maybe, oh, now's the time. You know what? Now is the time. Go to patreon.com slash idoubtitpodcast and look at what it, it, it is entailed in becoming a, uh, a Patreon supporter. We would love for you to help us produce what we do here, have important conversations like this, and in turn move that conversation forward as a community. We love you guys. We will see you next time. Until we do, for Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been I Doubt It.